Welcome to Sexy Pictures of Taylor Swift. No, I got you. It's We're talking about Brexit. This is Bunga Cast, the global politics podcast. At the end of the end of history, I'm Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And this podcast is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare, our resident Brexiteers in the UK. Uh, job done, boys. Job done. Yeah, thanks. Uh, maybe maybe we should leave that as an open part of the discussion. Well, indeed. Uh, indeed. So um, we're mainly here to discuss uh, a book that came out a year ago, I believe. Um, it's a long time already. Is that right? It came out this year, right? It came out in May. Yeah. That, of this year. My, my notes. Exactly. So it's, it's rel- a recent book called Taking Control, Sovereignty and Democracy After Brexit. It's by Lee Jones, Peter Ramsey, and also... Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare, who are here to discuss it with. So I'm kind of enjoying this, um, having these guys as guests rather than as um, as kind of fellow fellow panelists or whatever we are, um, hosts. Hosts, I think you call it that. Um, so this is my opportunity to give them a grilling, give them a hard time, um, but also say how wonderful the book is and how listeners should go out and, and, and buy it like, straight away. Um, we're doing this on video. If you're listening on audio and you haven't realized, um, we're, we're now doing video. This is our, our big pivot to video. So if you want to see our faces, um, which apparently are younger or older than you might expect conflicting accounts here, um, please don't message us to tell us what you think about that. Um, but do get in touch to tell us what you think about Brexit and about this episode. We'll be interested to hear more about that. Let's get cracking. I, I, we're recording this just for, um, for, for clarity's sake, uh, on the 23rd of November. So I think over the weekend, there were elections in the Netherlands. And um, wow, surprise, surprise, another far-right populist has been elected in a European country. In this case, it was Geert Wilders, PVV, um, coming in first. We don't know whether he'll be able to form a government. Maybe by the time you're listening to this, they, he has formed a government or um, he's gone into opposition because other parties haven't um, allied with him. But um, this comes shortly after, you know, just to, to kind of set this in context, also uh, Javier Millet winning in, in Argentina. It all feels a little bit like a script that we're used to now. The big populist breakthrough and insurrection, it's a bit like, oh, yeah, well, we know how this goes. Yeah, I mean, to the point also, because um, one of the main things that Gerd Wilders is known for is a referendum on Dutch exit from the um, from the European Union. And apparently he's already, that kind of promise he accepts would be very difficult. There is no kind of real popular momentum for it. Um, the vote for him and his party is mainly on the basis of opposition to mass migration um, and cultural conservatism. Uh, and so with respect to that, then, you know, he's already kind of backing off, not only from some of his promises on um you know, kind of uh, social policy and migration, but also most explicitly from a commitment to holding a referendum on the on re- withdrawal from the European Union. And it's a pattern that's repeated. Um, you know, the same kind of has happened um, that these major kind of national populist figures, Marine Le Pen, um, 
also um, Georgia Maloney in Italy. Yeah. There's been examples where they talk, their Euroscepticism is only in opposition. And the closer they come to power or the closer they attempt to grab for power, they um, you know, pull back from any promises that might destabilize the European Union or threaten to withdraw from it. So like you say, it's part of the script in Europe, Alex. And one that, you know, kind of underscores the exceptional character of Brexit. George. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that's that's it, right? You have the the kind of campaign as populist rulers, more straightforward conservative playbook. Um, as somebody who used to live in in the Netherlands, I'd, I'm I don't know what I can uh, tell you about the eternal um, soul of the Dutch people, if such a thing does exist, um, and why why this might have happened or not. I think I'm too out of um, out of touch with um, you know with with my time in the Netherlands. But yeah, I think it was. It's also part of the discourse. It's like this is a shock, you know. Look at the t- take the most kind of outrageous things that Hit Wilders has said, and like look at you know try and I guess scare and discipline the, um, the voters um, of other countries into you know into more sensible centrist um, options. Um, although, as you know, as we just said, it's not um, you know it's not like all of the most radical um, bits of rhetoric are going to be going to be kind of um realizing particularly around around um a dutch exit uh so, i mean or, or it, exit. It, an exit i think uh anyway Ned so, yeah it's next exit is german exit it's, yeah. i well, think it's next it can be exit. it can be dutch and uh hollandish and netherlandish um, well, I mean, if Holland separated from the Netherlands, that would be that would be a big that would be a shock. Um, but I think yeah, it feels right. It underscores, you know, in some ways how exceptional Brexit was in terms of actually happening, because um, you know, there's been other cases where there's a European Euro skeptic party comes in and and kind of there's not even actually any genuine serious moves towards um, exiting the European Union, let alone a successful campaign um, and, and process to do that. And we're going to kind of recap a little bit of that process in a second. But another thing that um, came, what I thought was interesting in the news today is that um, uh, 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 immigration numbers in the UK. So Brexit was supposedly, um, certainly this was the reporting, you know, uh, certainly outside of Britain and to a certain extent in the liberal press in Britain, that it was an anti-immigrant backlash from the white majority. I mean, I've encountered this idea in Brazil quite often. You know, people mention Brexit. They're like, oh, yeah, that's because they were against immigration, right? Um, and and I tried to tell them that that's not the whole story um, or m- maybe not even the main story. Anyway, Brexit has been achieved now. Um, and part of the reason that some people wanted Brexit was to limit immigration. That I don't think there's any question over. But net migration in Britain has now surged from around 100,000 at the start of the new labor era in 1997, up to 300,000 when the Conservatives took over, which was in 2010. And it's now up to 700,000. That's despite Brexit and despite repeated Tory party promises to get those uh, migration, inward migration numbers down. Or actually, these are net migration numbers, but in any case. Um, so was it all for naught? You know, did Brexit, I mean, I don't want to get into the big questions just yet about Brexit and what the consequences of it have been. But I mean, it's kind of remarkable, right, that gone through all this process, it was to kind of, in part, control borders, and nothing yet seems to happen. So maybe it's not the fault of the EU, you know, whose fault is it? Well, yeah, it's a good, it's, a, it's that, that's the important question, I guess, ultimately, it's, um, you know, it's our fault. 
um, we didn't take control. Taking, I mean, it's difficult to talk about this without going into some of the central arguments of the book, but this idea of take back control, one of the ways that was framed was around migration. And, and clearly we do not, um, you know, that's that's not something which is controlled through um, through democratic processes at the moment. You would say the Tory party are a very, very pro-immigration party. You know, let's see what happens in the, um, in the upcoming general election, but it doesn't look like the like Labour are going to be particularly different on that score. So yeah, we have um, we have a very liberal migration policy, which some people might like, some people might not like. But it doesn't seem that the um, you know that the concerns, the legitimate concerns or whatever, were listened to out coming out of Brexit because yeah, the numbers have gone up and up, and one point two million you- people. Um, that's a lot last year between I think it's July and July, like <clears throat> up so up until July 23. That's a, that's a, that's a lot of people. So it's the size, yeah, it's the size of the core city of Birmingham, which is the Britain's second city after London. Um, you know, so, I mean, it's a, it's an enormous, um, it's an enormous uh, kind of influx and, and obviously makes the decaying infrastructure of the British state and public services all the more, um, you know, kind of uh, strains um, all of that, all the, you know, all the more so. Um, I mean, th- but this looks goes- like a rosy picture for you guys, right? You basically have got Brexit and you've got um, a sovereign state implementing still a liberal immigration policy rather than trying to close the borders. So that seems yeah, like well, pretty me, good. You got what you wanted, right? Let me roll back. So the... Um, so, you know, in answer to your question, Alex, about in the first instance, the in the first instance, with respect to in the aftermath of the vote in 2016 on the referendum on withdrawing from the European Union, um, there was the so-called Lord Ashcroft poll, one of the major polling companies, and it's taken as one of the most um, definitive and important polls in terms of why people voted for Brexit. And the top answer was sovereignty. So people wanted um, an idea of national control that they felt had been confiscated from them by the by membership in the European Union. And the second answer, uppermost answer, was immigration, um, which is to say control over borders. And so the two things were um, an integral part of the idea of Brexit. And obviously at that point, the big question over migration was um, movement within the European Union so-called free movement and so you know there you were talking about a different kind of um a different kind of migration to the most recent numbers so that was migration from uh, primarily eastern europe um, and had been happening over the course of the previous decade or so but you know it was romanian migrants um polish migrants bulgarian migrants and now the same thing has been occurring but with people from a different part of the world and under the tory governments that have won um, since the Brexit vote, they've kind of very explicitly set about making it easier to um, bring migrants from outside of Europe into the European Union. So it shows that the political economy of Britain, and this is something we talk about in the book, is very much configured around um, importing cheap labor rather than, say, you know, um, investing in capital, investing in technology, or investing in productive growth through capital investment and business investment, what have you. So instead, it's the only way the national economy can effectively grow is by importing cheap labor. That's the model. And there is no political party either under Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, or under different Tory leaders has found a way to change that. And so the difference is... The difference between then and now 
is that that is no longer clouded by membership of the European Union, um, but now is very clearly exposed as a political choice made by a Tory government that is incapable or unwilling to adapt a political economy in in line with the wishes of um, the majority, because you know, repeat polls show a clear majorities are opposed to the level of mass migration we see at the moment, and that is possible. So the difference is that we have the possibility for greater political accountability, um, which we didn't have while we we're members of the European Union. All right, so let, let, let's committed. not. Yeah, this is getting into the argument of the books. So let's let's okay. not. Let's well, you, not do you, that asked, you asked the question. You, you know, yeah. you can't. Oh yeah, but I'm hosting. Evade, this, so I'm, 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 I'm also. You can't evade one. the answer. <laughs> just, just like now, longer no, now no longer Britain's elites can evade political accountability for immigration. Yeah. There you go. Um, so I'm going to try to, there's going to be some, if, listen, if you're a regular listener, you'll be aware of the kind of discussions that we've had about Brexit on this podcast, often not in a dedicated fashion, like its own episode, but episode, but it's cropped up very often because, well, it was an ongoing process through the early kind of first three years of this podcast or so. And, um, obviously it was a concern of George and Phil's there. I f- followed it with interest and also it was, you know, just a, a, an important, um, kind of global conflict, I guess, or, you know, conflict of, 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 of global weight. Um, it was your spiritual home as well. Well, I don't know if my spirit's there. Um, I have no soul. Anyway, um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you guys, you know, thinking back to the week after the Brexit referendum, let's say a week or month or something like that, I'm not going to ask you how you reacted, but how did you imagine it going? What did you foresee happening when that, in June of 2016, um, Britain voted to leave. Like, what? What, what did you? Yeah, you know. So, I mean, I can take you back to the to the the day after. You know, I can paint a a picture with uh, with words if you want. So, yeah, the, I mean, basically, I couldn't I couldn't sleep. Um, I didn't think that anything actually would happen. I thought that Remain would would win fairly comfortably. I mean, that as the book explains, there is you know there are reasons why some someone like like me, that kind of PMC type, um, might think this, and it was of course wrong. So yeah, I got up very, very early and went into work and um, basically nobody were, wanted to sit uh, sit near me because they all knew that I'd voted uh, leave and, you know, it was, I think, the only one in, in the office who'd o- openly uh, done this. So people were kind of filling in. <laughs> um, I was in one corner, just um, from the opposite corner, basically. Um, smelly corner. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it was due to having voted leave, but it could have been due to any number of personal failings either kind of personality or hygiene I guess that is true um yeah so what I mean I, I was just quite shocked I I mean it was a very surprising result I I hadn't seen it coming um so I I, I was really not sure what was going to happen next and I think this is the case for you know a lot of Britain's political class as well they were I mean but that it's kind of their job to have an idea of what might come uh come next and they they really didn't plan for this they didn't consider this possibility um to the extent that we had you know a number of years of just continual um extended crisis where it was obvious that there was no um force in british politics able to able to really grasp the nettle of of, of brexit and you know we can talk about what how that ended up resolving itself but i think the feelings that i had in that the immediate aftermath kind of d- deepened you know wasn't in shock anymore like several months later but it was like wow, there really is nobody in control of British politics. And that became 
clearer and clearer in a whole in a whole range of different ways. Yeah, I mean, so it was the only, let me think, so the Brexit referendum was one of the very few national British um, votes that I participated in during my adult life. Well, in my life, because obviously I didn't participate before then. Um, and it was a shock to me as well. So even though I voted, obviously, to leave the European Union, it was a shock to me because even though I thought it would be close, all the polls suggested it would be close um, and even that leave was ahead now and again, you know, leave seemed to be ahead. But I didn't think it would win on the day because I assumed that when people went into the privacy of the voting booth, that conservatism and risk aversion would prevail. And that however disenchanted and alienated people were with the status quo, they would event, you know, they would kind of opt for the devil you know for the devil you don't. That would be kind of that instinctive conservatism would prevail on the day of the vote itself. So I assume that we would wake to um, a close vote, but essentially, you know, the ship of state, um, such as we understood it to be at the time, would, you know, kind of sail on in placid seas, as it were. Um, the only inkling that something might have been amiss was I, I didn't stay up all night. I, I slept, in fact, because I was so confident that we wouldn't we wouldn't leave the European Union. Um, but I did stay up late to watch the first um, constituency come in, which is Newcastle. Um, and Newcastle is um, in the northeast and it's one of the areas um, that is perhaps, uh, you could say, despite kind of recent urban metropolitan renewal, it is one of the areas that has um, kind of proverbially suffered under neoliberalism and deindustrialization, the northeast of the country. Um, and so um, people, the first... It, declared the central kind of the Saint Newcastle upon Tyne, the center, the core of that area of that district declared in favor of Remain. But the commentators during the night, this was around midnight or 1am, if I recall correctly, they noted that it was a much tighter race than anybody expected and that Leave did much better in the Newcastle constituency than anybody expected. So I thought, eh, maybe, 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 maybe this is going to be interesting, but not interesting enough to keep me up all night. So when I got up um, and I looked and I, you know, went onto Twitter and went onto the BBC News website and the rest of it, it was amazing, like fireworks in the daytime, just stunning, like an unbelievable. <laughs> just, just I, my question actually pertained more to how you foresaw the process happening, not what your emotions look, were. Look, on I mean, the, I, on, that on was the moment. question, but you know, think think of of our book, the end of the end of history. <laughs> like one way to date this kind of the end of history to the end of the end of history is precisely between the twenty third and twenty fourth of June, twenty sixteen, in the UK. So it's like you have to Absolutely. allow us some license. I mean, you know, the fireworks during the day. This is you know, you have to allow us this. I mean, but I, I think it was, I think I did partly answer your question as well, Alex. That it was just so unclear there was like straight away there was you know people resigning backstabbing in, even in you know within months there was clearly no um the conservative party was 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 split and needed some time to reconstitute itself there was like there was it was mayhem it was like very because imagine you know all through like new labor and then coalition it'd been a kind of very They've been incompetent and they've been kind of, you know, not particularly impressive politicians. But here you saw a situation where the political class as a whole was was kind of wrong footed and and so it so it proved to be, I would say. So maybe maybe to fill in the picture a bit, Alex, more along the lines perhaps than that you were thinking of, and maybe for the benefit of our listeners as well who are outside the UK. Um 
you know, so I don't know, like so much of British politics prior to 2016 had been personalized, you know, so for years, like British politics was this dominated by this completely tedious, um, you know, personality clash essentially between Gordon Brown and Tony Blair. And there was, um, this was the centerpiece of debate. And then subsequently during the coalition government um, of uh, David Cameron and Nick Clegg, the Liberal Democratic Deputy PM, after Gordon Brown um, lost that election, you know, there was again kind of this um, question of personality politics and, um, and it was incredibly kind of meaningless and tedious. And after the Brexit vote, um, there was again kind of um, major personalities when um, Michael Gove, one of the leading figures in the pro-Brexit um, campaign on the Tory side, defected. He broke ranks with Boris Johnson and thereby sabotaged Boris Johnson's bid for leadership. Um, and it was this break in the ranks between Michael Gove and Boris Johnson that allowed the previously remained supporting Home Minister, Home Secretary, Theresa May, to become Prime Minister. So that effectively a Remainer became leader of the Tory party and subsequently Prime Minister after David Cameron's resignation, quite against the expectation of Boris Johnson taking over. And this was this was like, you know, this was you picked up the front of the news and you wanted to know who had resigned, why had Michael Gove resigned, how is this going to split the Tory camp? It was um, suddenly it mattered. You know, in a way before that, um, in a way before that it didn't, these kinds of petty clashes, it suddenly mattered for the politics of the nation. It mattered. The intra-party feud suddenly mattered. All mm. of it mattered because there had been this dramatic rupture and suddenly it was all up for grabs. And this was all underscored by the, um, also by the polling figures as they came in, that you had over a million and a half people voted in the, um, in that referendum than had voted in the previous election, even though they'd been eligible to vote. So it was clear that there was much greater kind of focus and intensity on the on the vote than um, than there was in any ordinary general election. And this was also obvious in the run up, right? You know, like I heard people talking politics on trains, cabbies would ask me my opinion about the referendum, which had never happened to me in my life. Nobody, whenever no, they heard... Normally people asking cabbies their opinion and it's just foreign journalists and they're, and they're like, oh God, I'm being asked my yeah, opinion. Yeah, exactly. Or if you told anybody you're a political scientist or an academic in politics, you know, that would be enough to kill a conversation dead. Um, yeah. And I, had, <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it is again now very often, yeah, I would say. Once again, it is, right? But yeah. in the run-up to the vote everyone was talking politics in a way that was extraordinary. And I've never seen it in my life and never seen it since. Um, and so that was clear. It was very clear. You didn't need to consult any kind. You didn't need to be a sophologist, right, to understand that there was some kind of um, meaningful ferment happening throughout mm. the country at large. Um, and so it was no surprise that the um, number of people who voted was significantly more in the referendum than in the prior elections or in the elections, subsequent general elections either. So one thing that you, I mean, I want to ask you to give a, a bit of a potted history briefly. We don't want to spend too long on it, but on the process of Brexit up until the UK actually leaves or Britain leaves the EU, um, come on to the question of the UK specifically, maybe towards the end. But um, and, and if you're a foreign listener and you're not exactly sure what the difference is between those, um, that'll also be explained. Um, or why that matters. But um, so one of the things you do in the book, obviously, is um, I guess it's an attempt to set the record 
the historical record straight in terms of not just what happened, because there's other places probably who are doing that as well, but more less interesting than in this book, um, but also um, set the record straight in terms of what the pivotal moments were and what the stakes were and the political import of those pivotal um, moments. I mean, I have the book here. Maybe I should describe it also, the, the cover, because it, it's, it's kind of neat. Let me see, if, at least for video people. Um, if you can see that, it, it, I think it's it, it's a it's the uh, Angel of the North. It, that's the inspiration, the Angel of the North by Anthony Gormley, the sculptor. Um, but it's the, the, all the people of the country are contained within this angel, um, which you know I guess represents the nation, and it towers over this um, sort of you know not not a utopian landscape. It's kind of like low key utopian. It's green hills rolling hills, fat, high-speed rail, um, still waiting on that to be delivered, it seems, um, British people, um, but high-speed rail, um, some solar panels, um, but still cows and sheep, um, and like some geodesic dome in, in the city. So, you know. But are you a of, vegetarian? It's, well, no, uh, no, you it, Brazilians loved cows, no? No, yeah, we lo I love cows, I'm dead or, or alive, um, especially dead, I guess. Um, anyway, um, so that's that's the cover of the book, I, but I, I I like the 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 idea that it conveys. Um, anyway, um, if you, you who, whichever of you two wants to kind of give a well, maybe just, just, just maybe the, choose just on maybe the cover. Yeah, sorry, just on the cover. It's obviously supposed to be like um, Hobbes's Leviathan as well. Like this yes. is this is all of us constituting national sovereignty. This is the power that we have um, collectively. I know that's a bit of a an obvious point, but one that I think is you know important to. Um, yeah, so Michael Lightfoot, the the artist who who did this, was part of a group called Artists for Brexit. So we did uh, we did draw on the there were a few, um, not that many um, artists who were who were for Brexit. So yeah, just wanted to fill in the the obvious um, point about the cover there. No, oh, good. Um, so uh, maybe I mean, it was our angels. It was the angels of the north that won the vote, right? Because it was um, old working class. Um, solidly Labour constituencies that would later become known as the Red Wall during the 2019 election. But it was Midlands and Northern English voters primarily, as well as districts in Wales, um, that won the vote for Brexit. So the Angel of the North is this sculpture, like Alex says, which is in the North. Um, and so we figured it was uh, it was an excellent image that would synthesise the actual outcome of the Brexit vote with the... Um, the uh, renowned kind of frontispiece of um, from Hobbes's Leviathan, the crucial, you know, the leading, um, the great kind of uh, political English political theorist of the modern age, and that synthesizes the point about collective representation. Though unlike Hobbes's Leviathan, the people that constitute the democratic Leviathan in in our case are all looking outwards rather than than inwards. And underneath, I mean, I think it's um, it's fairly utopian. You've got an airship, you've got a rocket ship in the background as well, as well as the geodesic domes and the high speed trains, um, and the green, the you know, the green and pleasant, um, what is it, England's green and pleasant land mm. as well. Yeah, it looks yeah, it's, ecolo it's ecologically Anglo sustainable too. Anglo futurism. Yeah. There's no dark satanic okay. mills. Right. Yeah. Okay, anyway, so that's enough about the cover on which we should not judge the contents of the book, I'm informed. Um, so as to the contents of the book, uh, maybe give us three, I don't know, pivotal moments in the process of Brexit, which kind of illustrate how the process um, was going, whether you want to talk about the checkers deal or the or, or the proroguing of parliament or whatever, I don't know, up to you. Yeah, I think... I think it's it's often devolved into like here is this specific deal 
um or here is this you know like this um parliamentary event i mean but that's we don't try and give a kind of um there is a timeline in the book um of all the important events but i think what we wanted to do much more than that was to try and synthesize everything that happened into a story which tells an important point and that point is brexit showed the exhaustion of all british political traditions socialism conservatism liberalism populism each in their own way showed themselves not to be able to fundamentally deal with the um I would say that the most important event, which was the vote itself, we give a whole chapter to the vote, particularly to correct some of the the slanders against the uh, the Brexit voters. Um, and this is, you know, informed by some of the kind of empirical analysis, like what, as Phil said, Ashcroft poll, why do people vote, you know, for, for leave? Because if you remember at this point in time, and I would say, if you want to say this is like, to answer your question, what are the key moments? The first one, I think would be that period of reaction like and it was reaction it was reactionary in the in the the purest sense there was a democratic moment without a democratic movement when people voted leave and the um the political cultural intellectual elites of the country repudiated the voters they were like you idiots like you gammons you morons like low information voters like idiot mouth breathing rubes um you've you've made the wrong decision um and so i think that was the first the first important moment of brexit is that it revealed the anti-democratic impulses of of the elites and the left and those two things not being the same um and yeah it was just very very um revealing i think the second um i, I don't um yeah i can go through my my take on this this is another yeah, thing go, like go having it. four having four authors it means uh you have slightly different um emphases the second moment was the political crisis that it um that it generated so we go through this obviously in a lot more detail in the book how it was that the that kind of initial reaction morphed into a clear divide between the people and the parliamentarians if you want to say the people and the representatives if you want to put it this way and there was all sorts of shenanigans and arguments and um kind of political divides within the conservative party within labor um, but what clearly happened, I would say, was there was no um, easy way to to resolve this because the representatives and the people were not were not on the same page. There was a um, a vote in 2017 which was not decisive, and then there was a vote in 2019 that was. And I think this is the third kind of important moment if after the reaction and then the crisis, as you had the beginning of the resolution. So there was finally a, a kind of a decisive vote which ended in a big conservative majority um and this was was the beginning of of getting brexit done but even getting brexit done this was not as we say as we go into much more detail in the book this was not the the fully not the full brexit if you want to put it this way not a fully democratic um kind of sovereigntist brexit instead it was an attempt ultimately successful by a seeming populist on within the conservative party boris johnson to basically put Brexit voters back in their box, hopefully permanently, but hopefully, well, from their point of view, but hopefully not from ours. So, yeah, I mean, there's, I think this, so this is all at quite a general level because I think what is often the story of Brexit is told in a very dry way. Like here is this trade deal and this didn't happen. There was this vote and you have to remember all these, all these dates and no, it's more of a, you can do it much more schematically um, because I think it, you know, it teaches us a lot of lessons about, 
um, some important political concepts, which had seemed fairly dead, fairly kind of dry and dusty beforehand, which actually political events breathe some new life into. I don't know if you'd have the same take on this, Phil. We should we should have um, established the party line prior to, to coming on the show together, but hopefully you will uh, not fundamentally fundamentally disagree with the political analysis, even if you have some different emphases. So I'd add a I'd add a couple of things to the story. So like George says, um, there's a timeline of events on um, um, pages eighty six to eighty seven in the book, which I hope um, you know kind of anyone who reads it finds useful and will um, benefit from. Um, and looking back, I mean, it was like I mentioned before, like suddenly things mattered politically, um, and this the the atmosphere, and this is you know the atmosphere was intense. Um, in some moments, incredible. And the scenes from Parliament were astonishing um, when, say, at certain points in 2019, when um, uh, the the whip was withdrawn from certain members of the Tory party, they were expelled from the Tory party for their failure to support um, the Brexit agreement under Boris Johnson. I mean, they were astonishing. And there's no kind of Parliament, that, in terms of Parliament at least, in terms of the internal crisis of the British political class, of the British the democratic structure of the of the British state. There's nothing comparable except, you know, maybe the home rule crisis at the start of the 20th century, which at the time, you know, people thought was leading to civil war over Ireland. Um, and though the atmosphere, though it wasn't, we weren't on the brink of civil war of, over Brexit, the, certainly the atmosphere, as we talk about in the book, was that of a cold civil war. So it was re up to the point of the 2019 election that Boris Johnson won. The atmosphere was becoming um, just rem- incredibly tense um, and polarized, and seemingly, you know, with kind of solidifying implacable hostility. So, in terms of the key points, there there'd be just one or two that I would add to the story to give, um, I suppose, a bit more shape to the answer um, that you're looking for, Alex. So one of the key moments um, throughout this was, and I think it's, I flag them up because I think they're an important part of the story. So very quickly after Theresa May became prime minister, the former home secretary under David Cameron, um, she had supported Remain, um, which made sense, right? Because she was kind of um, a leading securocrat within one of the most dysfunctional arms of the British state, the Home Office, and one that was very closely integrated, particularly through its security functions, was very closely integrated in cooperating with um, police forces in Europe. So as a bureaucracy and as a kind of overseer of that bureaucracy, she was an archetypal kind of remainer who was fixed to the integration of the British state into the European Union over its security functions, cooperating with police forces and other bureaucracies in Europe. So she became prime minister in July of 2016, swiftly after the vote that June. And she very quickly moved um, the following year. She very quickly, well, that year, she moved to um, put forward Article 50, which was the formal article for withdrawal from the European Union in the treaties associated in the treaty associated with the European Union. Um, and so she put forward the article for withdrawal 50. And this was important because it was the it was an indication of the lack of support in the country um, for her and also for polit- for politicians in general. 
Um, Jeremy Corbyn, for instance, called on the 24th of June for um, Article 50 to be invoked, putting the Tory government under pressure. Um, so there was consensus that the vote had to be respected. But rather than, say, um, taking their time with drawing up a strategy for how to withdraw from the European Union on Britain's terms, because there was such little support for um, the governing parties in the country and they felt that they lacked political confidence, she had to commit to invoke Article 50 as swiftly as possible because it was the symbol that Britain was going to withdraw from the European Union. So her word, you know, she gave this famous kind of um, remark to the press where she said Brexit means Brexit. It wasn't sufficient um, for the electorate. So they had to move extraordinarily quickly to invoke Article 50 and to mount the kind of with go through the legal processes of withdrawing from the European Union because it was trying to placate um, an electorate that had dealt this kind of astonishing um, blow to the British political system. I mean, it, it seems to me like hearing that, the, that what motivated, you know, the certain kind of irony there that what motivated the vote was in part um, the lack of credibility of the political elite, people's lack of belief in them as leaders um, because they suck and they're useless, <laughs> to put it basically. And, but that also means that when it came time to actually taking the country out of the EU, um, well, you know, they suck and they're useless. And so that creates a problem because they don't have the trust of the electorate to actually no, see through their, their aims. But like I said at the beginning, I mean, that's the accountability that was offered by Brexit, because one of the one of the key features of the European Union was that it was there to absorb criticism of the political system. And it was the way in which it was kind of it um, set the outer parameters for what was politically possible or desirable. Everything was organized and arranged with partnerships, partners in Europe or partners in Europe. But that also offered the possibility to scapegoat political decision making as well. And so political decision making could always be deflected or accountability for decisions could always be deflected by attributing blame to the constraints that were imposed by the European Union. And that was no longer available once the vote had been had to withdraw from the European Union. And so when you make this point, you know, it's true. This was a criticism that was made frequently of the vote um, among, you know, like, or it was a backhanded affirmation of the vote. People would say, oh, well, you know, I don't, something would go something like this. You know, you'd say, well, I don't think the voters are stupid, but it was just a protest vote. It wasn't a real kind of, um, it wasn't a really meaningful vote to leave the European Union. People hadn't fully considered the implications of what it involved. And it was a protest vote against the political elite. Um, and that was true, right? But it didn't diminish the significance of the vote because I think what voters had intuited in the run-up to the referendum was that it was a qualitatively meaningful choice in a way that was different from prior elections. And they understood that because that was the way the referendum had been presented to them. The, there was an ex a remarkably expensive propaganda campaign conducted by David Cameron's government. They, you know, they spammed all houses up and down the country with a leaflet committing to withdrawing from the European Union, committing to enacting the decision, if they, um, whatever the decision was, though the government encouraged, you know, people to vote for Remain. But everyone lined up on one side with one or two exceptions, right, in terms of the major figures of the political elite. The overwhelming majority of the political establishment, bankers, industrialists, lovies, leading intellectuals, um, actors, celebrities, you know, 
everyone lined up in one direction and voters intuited that this was an extraordinary um, possibility to um, give the elite a bloody nose. But also they understood that it was a meaningful choice. And so it was more than a protest vote or another way to put the, to make to say the same thing. It was a very um, accurately targeted protest vote because it wasn't a kind of a lashing out, but it was actually targeted at the core of politic of um, the yeah the, the kind of the limitations maybe. on the British on British on British um, public life, which was the European Union. So yeah. the European Union was you know that is what determined and set the um, you know the bet was the basis of legitimacy for the political elite and also set the confines of what was permissible, desirable, and um, legitimate in in British politics. I mean, and so yeah. it was a protest vote that was accurately aimed and that was vindicated by the reaction to it in the aftermath of the referendum. So, I mean, it, it occurs to me also that, you know, especially for those following from a, from afar, um, especially maybe in the U S because if, I think you're probably in another EU country, you would probably have, um, caught wind of the process, but probably been reported on a little bit more in your domestic newspaper, whether you're in, you know, Germany or Sweden or wherever else. Um, in, but, you know, for Americans, maybe um, less so. And it probably was a little bit, you know, it, it ends up being, I think, if you look at foreign reporting on it, it's a story of a government and the EU, right? So the domestic tensions aren't particularly brought to light. They're hard to because it's like the personalities and like who's Theresa May, who's Gove, who's Johnson, etc. Um, and it's all happening within one political party. Right, because the Tories, there was no change of government over this period. There was no national election which threw up, you know, the opposition coming into government to actually lead the Brexit process. It didn't split so neatly, even um, between you know party lines, um, to the extent that there was, you know, kind of very soft levers yeah, within the Tories and hard point. levers. It, so, it, I mean, for the benefit of our American listeners, right, Trump and Brexit, they both happened in the same year, two thousand sixteen, and they're often kind of talked about in the same breath as these tremendous shocks to Western politics. But there is a significant difference in, like you say, Alex, I mean, well, for the first, in the first question, um, the Trump vote was a kind of, it was a um, entirely, um, you know, entirely kind of anticipated run of the mill general election in the sense that it just went ahead or presidential election as it went ahead in the US. Whereas in the case of the referendum, it was a one-off kind of plebiscite that was understood to by everybody involved to pertain to very basic constitutional questions in in Britain, in the United Kingdom. So there was an immediate difference. And it also split votes in a very different way. Whereas in the first kind of election with Trump, it was essentially Republican voters mostly voted for the Republican candidate, Democratic voters mostly voted for the Democratic candidate, with the exception of the um, the Rust Belt kind of um, swing vote that switched from Obama to Trump and gave him the electoral college votes that he needed to get over the line and win the presidency. Whereas in 2016, it was a very, in Britain, it was a very different picture. You had, um, you know, kind of, uh, you had uh, a complete flipping of what was expected because you had old Labour constituencies coming out for Brexit, despite the Labour Party being hostile to Brexit. You had, as well as Tory shires that were um, kind of very comfortable and well-off coming out in support of Brexit as well, despite the majority of the Tory party being opposed to Brexit. 
So you had all sorts of um, upsets, even in Scotland, which voted on the which the majority voted to um, remain in the EU. A solid uh, one third of Scottish voters voted to leave the European Union, and the figure was even higher among supporters of the Scottish National Party. Right. So the point is, like it cut across established um, political divisions. It destabilized the political system within political parties as well as between political parties um, in a way that was very different. And so yeah. it's important to, because the, you know it's an important difference with um, the other kind of populist eruptions of those years, even though it's often assimilated to them. No, I think that's good also because um, for those who understood it as just being kind of a, like a right-wing thing, right? And then like the left and liberals were, in, you know, for the EU, um, and this was just like the right doing its thing, and then the right wins. And it's like, well, that's a kind of a truth insofar as it was um, something that came from the Tory party. But, you know, as you've said, there's divisions within the Tory party. There was divisions within the Labour party, and insofar as the Labour party stands for Labour voters as much as it does the, the party itself. So these divisions run through, and actually one of the interesting things, rereading the narrative history part of the book, kind of retelling what happens is the way that these shifts suddenly change these dynamics. So even though it's still the Tories in, in government, right, that doesn't change throughout this whole process. Suddenly Jeremy Corbyn swings behind a people's vote, right? A people's vote being the call yeah, so for actually, a second referendum. To, and that changes the dynamic suddenly as well. Yeah. So I wanted to go back to the story, you know, yeah. where I was talking about Article 50. So Article 50 was an important kind of um, moment in as much as the they needed, it indicated the continuity of a British political elite that was dependent on external support structures in order to make any kind of commitment. Because they knew that any promise they made was empty, they needed to kind of cling to the symbolic tokens that were embedded in EU treaty systems, in this case, the article on withdrawing from the European Union, in order to be able to motivate um, any kind of uh, public support and commitment. So the Article 50, the fact that they had to do it around Article 50 rather than, say, um, which would have been a better strategy, might have been, say, breaking up the... um, the European Union through bilateral negotiations with leading figures in the European Union. And there was a brief moment that the British state could have pursued this. Instead, by going for Article 50, they allowed the European Union to consolidate itself as a single coherent block in negotiations with Britain. Anyway, it's only to, um, this was an important moment. Another important moment was in 2017, when you had the um, the election was called, Theresa May had to consolidate her power base as being the unexpected prime minister. And all the polls suggested the Tories were going to do very well as the party that was more clearly associated with Brexit. And instead, Labour did remarkably well. And Jeremy Corbyn, as I'm sure many listeners will know, that was, um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn did unexpectedly well, a tremendous kind of um, show of a tremendous um, boost for the Labour vote. He gained parliamentary seats unexpectedly. This was seen as a tremendous um, vindication again for the Labour Party programme, for another kind of indication of the arrival of populism, of left populism, and the rest of it. Um, the following year, 2018, the second, and this was really, I think, an important turning point, was when the so-called People's Vote campaign was launched in April of 2018. This was um, kind of a yuppie populism um, because it was the idea of taking us back into the European Union, but making it or overturning, effectively overturning the vote um, and making it without having another referendum, um, but 
overturning the vote before we left the European Union. And this was very important because this was what really enhanced the intensity of the Brexit process, that there was now an organized, very well-funded, very well-organized, widely supported um, political movement in the UK that was dedicated to overturning a democratic decision before it had been enacted. And not only any democratic decision, but you know the one in which um, more people had voted in support of a very clear political choice than in all of British uh, modern political history. So um, this turned out, you know, then there was the back and forth over the following years, uh, the following year in 2019, um, the EU endorsed uh, the withdrawal agreement that had been negotiated by um, the Theresa May government. But then Britain was forced to withdraw it uh, because the she wasn't able to get it through Parliament. Um, and then because Britain was still a member in 2019, this is three years, remember, after the Brexit vote at this point, despite the fact that Britain was still a member of the European Union, sorry, despite Britain had voted to leave the European Union, we were still members. And so in 2019, we participated in the European parliamentary elections of May that year. And there was a tremendous um, vote in support of the Brexit party, which had been assembled by the former UK Independence Party leader, Nigel Farage, um, and they did tremendously well in the European parliamentary elections. Importantly, they took a lot of support in the Midlands and the north of England, which again, traditional Labour constituencies. And this basically, this um, the European parliamentary vote in May 2019 made Theresa May's leadership of the Tory party untenable after that. So the Tories then were forced into a leadership, um, another leadership vote. And this led to Boris Johnson coming to power, backed by Dominic Cummings, who was one of the architects of the Brexit campaign on the Tory side. And he was the one who came up with the slogan, take back control, that had been so um, effective in the run up to the vote in 2016. And then the Tory party won their um, landslide vote in 2019, putting um, Boris John giving Boris Johnson a tremendous mandate. Um, they won 80 seats. They decimated Labour support in its old industrial heartlands in the Midlands and the North. And it looked as if, you know, in two, early 2020, it looked as if the Tories had cracked a new model for conservative rule um, in the 21st century because they had reached out to old working class constituencies and found a way to appeal to them with promises of public investment, support, and most importantly, in respecting the vote. So one, one, one thing that I wanted to ask about is that, you know, a lot of this um, look, as I said already before, a lot of this looked like a conflict between Tory leaders and their delegates and the European Union. And they're confronting each other um, over trade deals and trying to negotiate this out. So it seems like a very intergovernmental affair, right? Um, and maybe, you know, if you're watching this from afar and you kind of go, well, there's all these European countries united against this Johnson guy who I don't like. Um, I hope the Europeans beat him and, you know, and kind of give him a bad deal or whatever. Or you might go alternatively, no, I want, I like this Brexit idea. I hope they win and I hope they beat the European Europeans, right? But that obviously is not the whole story because there's a whole kind of, there's, it's not just a matter of the British national interest against the uh, European one, but there's also the interest of Tory leaders and their vision of Brexit. And then there is the interest of the British masses, which are not um, consistent with those previous two things. Right. So you've got these three parts, let's say. Um, and I 
don't know how you necessarily square them, right? So you want so the the, the British masses might want um, to get a good deal out of the process and not be screwed by a bad deal or by no deal. Um, you have the Tory leaders' vision of Brexit, where they just want to, uh, certainly in terms of Boris Johnson, wanted to get the country um, out. Um, and then you have the you have the the need in those negotiations to be strong against the EU. Whatever your vision might be, you kind of need Britain to win out in those negotiations, which would suggest you would need to back your leaders, the Tories, as much as possible to get the best deal out of it. Um, but that means not questioning the Tories and what their vision is. So there's some moving parts there which aren't um you know don't don't fit together entirely how um mm, would you how do you not, negotiate that and, and how do you how do you see that i'm not sure i agree um would be my short answer so by by the time we got to 2019 people had voted for brexit in 2016 in a general election in 2017 in european elections in a general election like there was a clear mandate that the tories had by the time johnson got got into power that people had you know had voted for this multiple times um you know but, i think there's still the, earlier, what deal they, what deal you get how yeah, I mean, able are you the, to get a deal yeah i mean earlier in the process it, it did become clear that one of the things which gave the eu uh, a much better bargaining position is that um that we weren't really prepared to to leave without a deal you know if you're not prepared to walk away from a negotiation it's a very basic point yeah. if you're not prepared to walk away from a negotiation then it puts you in a, in a less good position but yeah i mean the what i would agree with was i think i, I well i guess one of the kind of more political assumptions of what of what you're saying that that nobody had a nobody really wanted this like as as within the political class what what was the eu it's not an external um constraint it is something which is part of the internal decomposition of representative politics in a in a member state and it is something that the the ruling class can use quite quite comfortably to evade responsibility so it's quite you know you're, you're put in a difficult position as a politician um if you're expected to lead britain's um departure from the eu because you're basically putting yourself under more fire potentially you'll put it basically saying well um i'm gonna get rid of these kind of external constraints um and i'm i'm now going to be more, more accountable for what my party decides to do so yeah i mean it, there's not a straightforward um kind of interest within one of the two kind of established parties in in british politics i.e labor or the conservatives to to kind of put forward a really radical brexit um plan and and that's exactly what happened there was you know get brexit done which is how it eventually got resolved is completely depoliticizing it's like get this away we don't want this kind of potential kind of um active ingredient in our in our politics instead we would prefer to go back to um you know the 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 pre-2016 days ideally even like the the London Olympics of 2012, when everything was um, much easier and more straightforward for the for the political class, because you know everyone agreed on everything and it was all fine and and good. So, yeah, I mean, there's it's not in that way surprising that there wasn't a you know there was some, some populist challenges of various different sorts, but there wasn't a within the kind of established political parties of Britain there wasn't a, a clear vision and program and um, for what Brexit could be. I mean, I, I would add kind of one final part to my um, kind of chronological sketch. 
And this answers your question, Alex, about I think there were fewer moving parts than you lay out because the difference um, in early 2019, Jeremy Corbyn, who is at that point leader of the Labour Party, he endorsed a second referendum. And this is what notoriously led the Labour Party to such a crushing defeat. Um, you know, their member, their number of seats they had in Parliament dropped to levels not seen since the 1930s. Um, it was a tremendous blur, not least because they lost, you know, kind of constituencies, their heartlands, um, constituencies that some of which had always been Labour since they were created. And the difference between the surge in the support for Labour in 2017 and the defeat for Labour in 2019 was precisely the commitment to the second referendum. Um, and so this, I think, was the part of the most important part of it, because they it indicated that all of the promises that Labour made in 2019 were seen as hollow without a commitment to respect the earlier vote. And that, I think, was the central mess. That was, again, you know, voters understood this very, very basically, that it was shot to pieces, the switch to... Um, undoing the earlier vote in 2016, the fact that Labour now pivoted behind the idea of a second referendum indicated that their commit, all of their promises were hollow and that there was no base, um, coherent democratic basis in which to support the Labour Party. And they, they crashed and burned. And so it indicated insofar as there was mass feeling and mass ferment, it was captured by um, Boris Johnson's Tory party. Um, and so the promises of greater public investment, the promises of um, a more expansive and supportive state, the promises of um, renewed investment in constituencies that had been overlooked and left, you know, kind of been run as a one-party state in the North and the Midlands by Labour and had not won anything from government for decades, all of that was going to be overturned by the promises now that were lavished on them by a Tory party that had also um, committed to respecting the 2016 referendum. So I think there was, um, you know, the mass democratic feeling was certainly captured by the Tory party at that point. Um, and, obvious, and, you know, it's, uh, it is remarkable as well. The story of how they lost that and how they've squandered that majority in the intervening time is also a remarkable story in itself. So I, w I want to move on to some of the bigger questions now. Um, I think one interesting thing you say in the book, or that you illustrate, is that given the difficulties um, of getting Brexit through, if you just wanted some of the benefits, right? Like you say, yeah, I'm in favor of Brexit because like it'll give us more democracy and um, we can arrange different trade deals. We're not stuck by the EU. We can get rid of some of the regulations. We can, you know, have more um, restricted immigration policies, whatever. Um, and so that you're willing to settle for some sort of compromise deal with the thing. But the thing is, as the longer that goes on, um, the more difficult it seems, right? And that ultimately you come to realize, like, what's the point of Brexit? Right. What's the, what's all if it's going to be all that fuss, may, maybe we're just better off remaining in. And I think that's kind of the conclusion that people end up being what you're naturally pushed towards unless you have a vision of um, this much more thoroughgoing democratic vision of Brexit. 
that you kind of want to push people towards. Basically kind of saying, well, it kind of has to be this full Brexit vision because as soon as you start rolling back on that great democratic promise and ripping Britain out of the EU, transforming it into or rebuilding the British nation on a new basis rather than um, have it be as a member state, uh, if you're not going to do that, then you kind of, there's no kind of halfway house. It doesn't really work because then you're just, you kind of get a, get a situation where, for example, you're taking rules from the EU without being able to shape them by you know being in the customs union or something like that. So I think that's quite neat. Um, but then that leaves, op- so your basic point is there is no um, kind of possibility of Brexit without a kind of some transformative vision. Now, what is that transformative vision? Um, because ultimately, you know, you've had Brexit, it's happened now, you've won. Why care about Brexit? It's, this is one of the few populist moments of the past decade that's actually led to some institutionalized change. The only one that I can think of off the top of my head. And everything has gone back to the way it was. Probably worse, in fact, because not only um, are, is it have you got a kind of, um, you know, kind of two centrist figures leading the two main parties, there's also no populist energy to the left or to the right of them, no Corbyn, no Farage. Farage currently, I think, is away in the Australian jungle on a reality TV show just to illustrate that point. Although maybe that's just a plank for his return to frontline politics. But nevertheless, you know, um, the point is, well, was it all worth it? You know, I mean, mean that seriously, because things kind of look worse in Britain now than they did before Brexit. And it seems to, Mm. for all all that we talked it up, and I believed in it, oh, this is going to really shake things up. This is going to be great. This is going to open up a new horizon of politics. Actually, Mm. no. No, I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would kind of, a sense of some of the basic premises of what you're saying. I mean, as soon as the Brexit vote was 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 enact was was made, there was at that point there's already you know kind of transformative vision or not, withstanding there's still a a reason to defend Brexit because you have to respect. Well, you don't have to, but um, certainly as a Democrat, I would I would um, very much like if votes are are respected. So the 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 kind of I think the situation changed from the the 23rd to the 24th of June in 2016 because one was before there was a vote so you can campaign for for leave but then it was you know it was a campaign for having that vote enacted and I think putting any second point would be putting any conditions on the kind of instrumental or or the consequences of Brexit this was essentially the Lexit position or a position that we were often described as as being kind of Lexiteers um, and in a very, you know, I think a very good piece that Phil Phil wrote said, well, no, we're not um, Lexiteers. I mean, Brexit Bolshevik is a term that that um, Phil used in that piece, which, you know, I can't speak on behalf of all of the, the authors of the book, but I think is a neat term. And this is the basic idea that Brexit is good independently, uh, good for, you know, for, for democracy, independently of whether there's a left wing party in government, government, whether there's kind of all of the things that could happen that kind of a initial Corbynite energy of like we could do all these things outside of the EU which which did soon dissipate instead no Brexit is good because you know points we've already made and this is why the situation well, okay, today but, is but different if you can buy that because you can buy that and look around and kind of go yeah but Britain's not more democratic now than it was before well it is in one sense yes it definitely it is, is because-, because it's connected to what we we're talking about at the start right somebody is now accountable for those immigration figures if people don't like it then they they the 
you know, politicians can't say anymore, oh, it's due to EU rules. Now it's like, this is our choice as the Tory party. If people don't like it, they can tell the Tories to get stuffed. And equally, if Labour have a, a very pro-immigration policy and people don't like that, until Labour's get stuffed. I mean, it's not a fund. It's not the fund. The we haven't suddenly entered kind of um, you know communism, but there is a, a fundamental qualitative change, and that is important. So around the at the time of the expansion of the European Union eastwards um, and the absorption of new members, um, it's uh, Mervyn King, and we know this now because the records have been declassified. Mervyn King, who was then governor of the Bank of England, which is an independent central bank, he told Tony Blair to let in, you know, to commit to allowing free movement for um, migrants coming in. Um, for labour, cheap labour coming in from the new members of the Eastern Eastern members of the European Union. Um, and he said, you know, this would be good, in his words, because it would act as a drag on wage growth so that there would be fewer inflationary pressures in the economy. And the Bank of England is committed to inflation targeting, to keeping inflation under control. The way this was confidential, right? So this was confidential memos that have only since been revealed. The way this was justified was we have to do, so Tony Blair justified this as we have to do this because this is part of being a member of the European Union. Even though other European Union states had um, put back the date by which they would agree to free movement to people from Eastern Europe. So new citizens of the European Union, whereas Britain was among the first in um, and the numbers that arrived were far in excess of um, what the new Labour or the British state had planned for. Um, but it completely transformed, you know, radically transformed um, British society, um, but also, in, you know, um, perpetuated a British political economy based on importing cheap labour. So that was the way the European Union functioned, Right. Um, membership of the European Union. Eve, the decision was made on internal British internal British grounds about the um, in the interests of the of the policy of the central bank, but it was justified by reference to membership of the Euro, of the European Union that tied our hands with respect to certain decisions, such as how people coming and going from within the European Union. That we had to absorb this this wave of. Um, wave of mass migration from Eastern Europe because this is this was a necessary part of um, being part of the European Union. And so this was very much in keeping with the entire era of Blairite globalization, right? The idea that there was no alternative, that globalization was a force of nature. All you could do was adapt rather than um, mold or shape or let alone kind of transform or change. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So that was that option is no longer available, right? So the European Union was the institutional form that globalization took in British politics. It was the institutional form by which British politicians could say could instantiate neoliberalism. It was the institutional form. It was the political form of globalist neoliberalism. Um and that is no longer the case, right? You can no longer palm off decisions that are made by elected politicians um, and make it simply the case as if they're some something which is imposed by diktat from the outside. So let me put this. Let That's me put this. Difference. Let me put this a different way because I'm, you know, I could easily, you know, be the interview who's not convinced, and I, you know, I, I want to believe, right? So I'm, I'm convinced, but I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily be convinced because they're still looking around and going. Look, it's still the same politicians in charge. Like, not 
they're not going to listen to us, right? So, well, I think, let me put this differently, because reading through, again, to refer to the kind of historical narrative in the book, what becomes clear is that throughout the whole process, there was not even a glimmer of a constituted force which could really see things through. They were all contradictory at best, and that's when they weren't actively anti-democratic. So, you know, the Corbynistas are contradictory. Eventually, they kind of folded on the Brexit question. Um, the Johnson types, yes, yeah, saw through Brexit, but they weren't really interested in any kind of transformative moment, let alone kind of refounding a democratic republic. Well, let, certainly not a republic, but even a democratic monarchy, whatever that might be. Um, certainly not interested in that, let alone in kind of using the possibilities for increasing spending, state aid, um, etc., revolutionizing the economy, any of these things. So, I mean, what, what's amazing kind of following this process, yes, Britain kind of ends up by hook or by crook getting out of the European Union, um, but it's like th there was no force really leading that. No force constituted itself to lead that. Um, and so, maybe, you know, that's why you kind of end up in the situation where everything looks remarkably like it did before. Yeah. I mean, I've got two, I don't know if they're sound bites or slogans, but yeah, I mean, I think it's a, you know, it is a, it is a valid question. And, but I don't, I think it's important that we, in the book and around the time of having all these discussions, we thought that Brexit was necessary, but not sufficient for a democratic transformation. Like it's not, it's not like you, you achieve Brexit, you know, bam, suddenly you have this, um, this transformation. And this is precisely because, and here's the second slogan, Brexit was a democratic moment without a democratic movement. There was no new, new model army to actually, you know, carry things through. It, it was the, the form that a, um, a kind of democratic moment is likely to take within a member state of the European Union, or there are lots of similar sorts of, um, of states in, in across the world but this is you know it's it's very heavily constrained because there aren't these vehicles there aren't these um institutions to catalyze and organize um people so you know there's there's not it's not sufficient for transformation and i, I don't think many people other than the most kind of d deluded perhaps kind of thatcherite eurosceptics might have thought you know we just get brexit and suddenly we're global britain no it, it requires Democracy requires, or sovereignty, more accurately, is, a, is in Hobbes's view, for example, would be something about the quality of the relationship between the governed and the governors. And that doesn't fundamentally change overnight due to Brexit, but it cannot change but through through processes like Brexit. So, you know, I, I kind of, I am sympathetic to this because I'm not particularly satisfied with the, the condition of British politics, but, you know, it's a, it's a step on in, in the right direction. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I mean, and I think Britain is further ahead in terms of the of the democratic renewal that's necessary emerging from decades of neoliberalism and globalization, political and economic globalization. Britain is further ahead than I think probably any country in the world and certainly um states in the US, um states in the West, right? So to that extent, if it's a um if it's a, a slow process um, you know, that should come as no surprise, but also it means that I still, you know, I'm confident that part of the political, the wrenching political transformations that have been wrought, um, in the last, um, in the last few years, are they'll significant, you know, their repercussions and implications are significant. And you say there've been no changes, Alex, but you know, there have, right. Um, 
I mean, the um, the Red Wall, the revolt of the Red Wall in 2019, where constituencies where they used to mock them, you know, they said a donkey with a red rosette would be elected to parliament if the Labour Party put it up in those places. And the people in those, you know, former mining um, former mining communities and constituencies, people in um, outlying towns and exurban, suburban areas of major metropoles in the North and Midlands, they um, they showed they can't be taken for granted. It was a tremendous um, working class revolt against the so against the um, repres- political representatives of working class voters, and that was something that was something to behold. And now they're swinging back. If the polls are to be believed, they're going to swing back to the Labour Party and away from the Tories. So, doesn't that rather undermine your point? I mean, that they'll no, either no, come back home or they, or they won't no, vote. This is, this is an important. They're not. Important they're one, they're not one-party states. They're swing states now, right? They used to be little one-party statelets, constituencies that were under the thumb of the Labour Party, and they've demonstrated their political independence um, and that they can do as they please, right? Political um, independence Tory- is an important. You know, I think that's that's the important point that Phil's making, that it's, you know, people are now no longer, you know, allied to these old and failed and kind of decayed institutions. Anyway, sorry, Phil, I don't need to tell you what you're really saying. but No, no, but, it, you know, it underscores the point. And another significant thing is, like I say, in 2019 and early 2020, it really did look like Boris Johnson, this is what the op-eds were saying, he had a vision for conservative parties everywhere. <coughs> Yeah. Excuse me. Forgive listeners and uh, uh, viewers. I'm recovering from viral bronchitis, so I got a cough. But you know, like in the early days, right of the Boris government of the Johnson government, it looked like he had a model that was going to be rolled out across the West. Conservative parties saw how they were going to win back old working class constituencies and make forge new electoral coalitions that would, you know, lead them into the middle of the century to rule. Gone you know, shot to pieces, right? So another kind of um, indication of the turbulence that still um, hasn't been contained or resolved as a result of Brexit. And that's without even mentioning um, the instability that Brexit has introduced into the structure of the British state itself, which is over the union, right? Because, um, and just briefly, because this is, I mean, this is a complicated history and I'm sure we have some Irish vote, um, some Irish listeners who will, um, you know, be uh, be able to offer more detail in their comments and feedback and so on, but um, the difference between the deal that was offered to the EU by Theresa May and the deal that was offered by Johnson was where you draw the trade border, right? So Theresa May's um, because she lost so many votes to Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, she became dependent on the support of. Um, Protestant unionist parties in Northern Ireland. And that meant that she, in her deal with the European Union, she had to ensure that there was nothing that would jeopardize the place of Northern Ireland in the United Kingdom. Because Northern Ireland, due to the peace agreement that ended the war in Ireland in the 1990s, the Good Friday Agreement, Northern Ireland is very heavily integrated into um, trading with the Republic of Ireland. And it's part of the peace agreement that they are integrated with. um, the rest of uh, the Republic of Ireland on the so the point being right that she had to commit to not doing anything that would jeopardize the economic place of Northern Ireland in the Union and this meant the possibility of diverging from the European Union in terms of any meaningful economic or regulatory and policy changes um, were shot 
right? Um, and this was due to her dependence on Northern Unionist votes. Um, this changed with Boris Johnson's election in 2019. The fact that he took all those constituencies from Labour meant that he was no longer dependent on the vote of Northern Unionists in Northern Ireland. Right. And so this gave him greater political independence. And the deal that he gave the European Union draw, drew a border. So the trade border was no longer between Ireland, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, which is ruled from London but was rather in the Irish Sea, which is to say between Britain and Northern Ireland. So the way the way Johnson resolved the dilemma was by weakening the union, right, in order to um, secure the deal with the European Union. He weakened the United Kingdom in order to secure the deal with the European Union. And so this has um, left a kind of a... Um, a centrif centrifugal force... Um, which is slowly eroding the United Kingdom itself as a result of Brexit. And this is why people are talking about the prospect of Irish reunification as a result of Brexit, um, which also, as a knock-on implication and effect, calls into question the union of the other three remaining nations, Wales, England and Scotland, within Britain, right? So the point is there, there's still tremendous political ferment um, as a result of Brexit, which is not resolved, um, not just the kind of the status of the North and the Midlands, which I mentioned, but also the status of the Union itself, as well as the prospect of Irish reunification. And those are only some of the questions. Um, so, I mean, the, the thing I'm wondering also is, you know, as I alluded to earlier, there was no force that was really willing to see through Brexit, right? Sort of with a vision for a transformative Brexit. Just didn't exist. Um, there were parts of it separated in different parties, but it was, no one was able to kind of unite those um, forces amongst the people together into different uh, into into a vision um, and provide leadership. And I, one of the things I wonder is that the transformative vision of Brexit, which is the only one that is worth anything, I think is more or less your point, and it's one that I agree with, um, is that. You know, and, and as you say, you know, it's a process which goes beyond Brexit. The, the kind of democratic transformation needs to continue. Um, but it, it ends up all being, in my view, a little bit arid. So even if you buy the constitutional and the kind of theoretical arguments about, you know, effectively taking back control, um, about, um, you know, not making government subject to kind of inter intergovernmental treaties or to, you know, backroom deals with uh, their European partners, but be uh, responsive to the people, you know, okay, sure, but isn't it lacking something a bit sexier? And you say in the book, sovereigntists, meaning, you know, kind of yourselves and the people that you're um, trying to appeal to, sovereigntists do not need over-detailed plans for the future as long as they're clear about the stakes of sovereignty. Isn't that kind of evasive? You yourselves are letting yourselves off the hook, the democratic responsibility, because you're not painting a vision. Of the future you're just going no no we'll just have democracy and then we can choose for a lot of people it's like yeah maybe that worked in the 17th and 18th century because that was a sexy new idea democracy self-rule but now but in the 21st century democracy is everywhere everyone talks about democracy it's not a sexy new idea democracy is a label stuck on so many different things including some really ugly things maybe it doesn't even sound that sexy right doesn't sound that appealing so maybe did brexit not need its own poetry did it not need a more it, uh, rounded it, out vision it's a it's a sexy old idea though 
like democracy. Yeah, it's but, still, it's still but lots no, of people it did. did. No, it but what is. I would say, no, but look, it did, right? But the difference was that it was attached to sovereignty, right? And that was what made it um, meaningful in a way that democracy had been completely hollowed out in its meaning. Um, and I think it's an important point, Alex, you make, because obviously, you know, democracy had been, you know, it's long been debased. Um, Throughout the Cold War era, I suppose, most significantly by the Eastern Bloc, the so-called people's democracies of the Eastern Bloc, um, they debased democracy and they made it easier for the liberal democracies of the West to claim that mantle for themselves, given how they, you know, abused the title. But after the after the fall of after the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the disappearance of the Warsaw Pact, um, the way democracy was debased was by being conjoined to a cosmopolitan supranational vision of politics. Right, so democracy was something that became associated with, um, uh, you know, kind of the expansion of liberal capitalism. Democracy became something that was associated with U.S. hegemony. It became something associated with European integration. It became something associated with, um, you know, lobbying, NGO lobbying in Brussels. Something associated with transnational integration, following the diktats of kind of uh, world trade deals, membership of the World Trade Organization, the expansion of uh, free trade blocks, um, deregulation, and so on. And that was the way in which democracy had been debased in that neoliberal post-Cold War period. And that was because it was sundered from sovereignty. Right. So the difference was that um, Brexit was the process of reattaching democracy to sovereignty. So to the idea of a final um, authoritative center of power and decision making within the state that would make um, public decisions and public choices meaningful, politically meaningful. And that is what makes democracy matter. Right. You need sovereignty to make democracy meaningful. And so that was what Brexit offered. And that is what makes, that is in answer to your question about um, whether democracy is just kind of an empty platitude in the contemporary era. It certainly had been in the, you know, kind of when it's simply seen as a, um, you know, as an appendage of globalization. But the prospect of attaching it to national sovereignty gave it its specific inflection in Brexit that changed that. And the vision, as far as our vision for Brexit goes, it's contained, I think, within the image that we already discussed on the front cover of the book. The con, the program is fleshed out in the latter part of the book, but as far as it has its own poetry and its own image, it's contained within that. And we also should give some credit to Dominic Cummings, who is um, one of the leaders of the um, of the Vote Leave campaign in 2016, because he was the one who came up with the slogan, Taking Back Control clearly resonated so much with so many voters because it spoke to their sense of political disaffection and alienation. And he offered the idea, he showed that politics could matter, that people did want actually more control over their public lives and over their lives through through their involvement in politics. He proved that by winning the referendum on that slogan. And we take it further mm. because we indicate it's not just it wasn't possible to take back control um, because there was no, um, you know, there was no kind of uh, nation, British nation, which was ready to emer emerge kind of resurgent from the rubble of member statehood. That British nation had to be created, mm. has to be created. And that is what we propose to do through um, our program, which is um, detailed so, so on those, yeah, the on, on those proposals, I mean, you don't talk about things like 
building out high-speed rail or nationalizing industries or uh, raising taxes or shutting borders. There's none of, there's no, none of that. And I mean, indeed, you were critical of um, the Lexit idea, which made leaving the European Union conditional on getting certain democratic goodies and the Labour Party being in power. And I understand being you know, critical of that, absolutely. I still think, you know, and this is a question of political practice, not a question about the history or theory of, of Brexit of the past couple of years, that maybe a little bit more concreteness in the vision of what a Brexit Britain would look like maybe um, wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have hurt. Um, maybe because once that democratic, that enthusiasm for taking back control wanes, as it seems to have done, it's left then kind of wanting, you know, what's the, what next? How does this, how does my life improve? Right. And answering those questions. Now you have some proposals, not necessarily how does my life improve kind of proposals, but um, you talk about exiting NATO, about um, letting Northern Ireland go effectively, undoing devolution to Scotland and Wales, and then a series of political reform initiatives like entering corporate finance for political parties, um, including um, the you know trade unions attachment to the Labour Party, which is you know would be yeah. controversial on the left, even if the ending corporate donations to political parties would uh, would otherwise be a, a popular thing on the left. Uh, introducing proportional representation and a couple other. Beside, uh, do you want to talk us through Alex, those? Alex, you're still, you're still, you're still um, defending Corbyn years after he was smashed oh, to all. pieces. Not at all. By a complete buffoon, right, Boris Johnson? No, you I are. think he's screwed it. I think he's screwed it. I was always critical. What was no, I critical the of? Of what you're saying is, you know, like the only thing that matters are material goods. Oh, and I didn't say representation. that. Yeah, but that's the implication of what you're saying. Political voice don't matter. Right, and the what political voice does is, matter, but you need to, you know, uh, the point is not, hey, yeah, you're going to get some more welfare spending. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah, look, this isn't us saying this, right? This is what the voters themselves said in 2019. They wanted voice, right? And so, and this is the point that we argued about and we've made before on the podcast. The Labour Party promised everything in 2019. They were even joking. They were practically joking with broadband communism as a slogan. Yeah, right, that was just one minor part to. of the one minor part of the thing. It was not minor. The point is, they gave all sorts of fantastic promises, and then they about and then and they did and they took away voice exactly. But you need public both. infrastructure. That's what and I'm they saying. Were shot you need to pieces. But the, the point no, is that you need both. The point both. is that voters plumped when they were given a choice between goodies, right, being showered on them from on high, and voice. They chose voice. I l- so, let me just be let me just be clear um, because of this slander. I wrote something at that time saying. Because of the lack of trust in politics, promising voters things, if people don't like you and don't trust you and feel they have no control over government, is not going to get you anything. And that's why Labour lost. So I made that point very explicitly at the time. I'm not slandering you, but I'm saying what you're saying is inconsistent. You're right? misrepresenting. You're misrepresenting me because I I have made this point very clearly. What I'm saying, I know saying you have, and I think you're conceding. Vis- you're still conceding. But I, had, too much. I said nothing about Corbynista goodies. You know about goodies from on high. No, I'm saying paint a vision of what we Britain are going to do in the future. What is our nation going to look like? Are we going to be rich? Are we going to be poor but equal? What is our vision going to be? That kind of thing. Not the goodies that you're going to get once we leave the European Union. That's what I refer to when I say the poetry, right? Mm -hmm. What is the poetry of Brexit? Not like, oh, well, now we don't have the European Union because Boris Johnson went and signed a document and now we're free, right? Like, that's so yeah. the, program, the program that we offer is the vision for constituting a new British nation, right? One that is formed from Britain, not incorporating Northern Ireland, um, the six counties of Northern Ireland into the Union. So we think that um, 
uh, it will that Northern Ireland is a weakness, in fact, in British sovereignty for reasons that are laid out in detail in the book, but have been vindicated um, through the process of Brexit. As we said, the way in which Boris Johnson secured the withdrawal agreement was by fragmenting the sovereignty of the UK. Effectively, he has to cede sovereignty over Northern Ireland to the European Union, drawing the trade border in the Irish Sea, effectively, between Britain and Ireland. And so the Irish, you know, the prospect of Irish reunification, which is... um, uh, you know, more closer now than it has been in a generation, if not perhaps for a hundred years. Um, that is um, a real kind of uh, possibility of a democratic gain for Brexit um, and a gain for self-determination, both in Britain and in Ireland. Um, all of our proposals are linked towards greater voice, though, right? And great, which is to say, representation um, and constituting a new coherent citizen body that is capable of exercising rule over itself and also carving out a new space for itself in the world. Um, And so you mentioned, for instance, one of the programs. So part of the program that we offer is internal renewal through political reconstitution, a unicameral parliament based on abolishing the House of Lords with expanded representation, um, one one parliamentarian for every 50,000 electors. At the moment, it's something like one parliamentarian for every 70,000 electors. So if this proposal of, of, if this proposal of ours was instituted, you would have a, a radically expanded House of Commons, um, as well as, like you say, kind of restructuring the party system um, through proportional representation, through ending corporate funding, through forcing parties to seek individual funding, um, with caps on what any individual could um, support. And these, just to be clear, I mean, these proposals are very explicitly designed to create um, the greatest possible um, input from the British people into shaping a new political state on the one hand, but also carving out international leadership um, and one of the one of the kind of key roles for that would be to build to consolidate on the Brexit process by brexiting from NATO, which, as I imagine, most of our listeners will agree, given NATO's record in places like Libya, Afghanistan, and the former Yugoslavia, is the enemy of national sovereignty. Um, perhaps the single organisation that is most um, hostile to the idea of national sovereignty in world politics today. And so consistent with the process of Brexit, with the politics of Brexit, we propose leaving NATO. And in that way, Britain would carve out a new politics for itself in in the international realm, a politics of armed neutrality rather than the polar geopolitical polarization that we're seeing between Russia and the US playing out in Europe at the moment, um, and also repudiate the legacy of uh, humanitarian wars and liberal imperialism that have been so central to NATO's mission um, since the 1990s, right? So this would offer a new model of international cooperation infused with the democratic um, rejuvenation, both of Brexit and of the proposals that we offer in the book. I mean, it sounds like a bit of a cop out, but in in some ways, the the proposals are just to increase democracy, and then to have the faith that if you were to do that, then the kind of 
almost the political economy will will follow. I think this is like a very old, like if you if you want to kind of say like what's the history of the left, almost the you know the first moment around the French Revolution was this kind of emergence of popular sovereignty, and then it was only in the nineteenth century that that almost gets applied to to economics. So we're kind of like going back quite a long way to say well. What are the things that we could do to have a more democratic, um, a more democratic country, and then the actual kind of gains of that? Not to go back too much of that earlier exit point, but it's not, it's not, they're not, it's not instrumental. These gains justify the transition to democracy. The transition to democracy is is justified in and of itself, and we believe, you know, I guess essentially in the British people, that the more democracy you have, the better society you will you will end up having, and that's kind of, you know. I think that's to, to summarize all the all the specific pr- proposals. What's the, the animating force behind them? More democracy equals better. Therefore, you know, a, a more a more prosperous, materially rich, kind of integrated, and kind of flourishing society. So, yeah, I mean, that might sound a little bit basic, perhaps, but I think that's you know, identifying democracy and sovereignty at the core of the contradictions that led to Brexit. We tried to follow that through into what the proposals were, and those will change as as the context changes in the next few years, I'm sure. So one last question, just to, before we finish off and say goodbye. I think, you know, there's a, a proviso here, which is that I suspect um, Brexit happened in the UK, and it was even led to the stage of actually hosting a referendum, in part because there's a reservoir of a feeling of kind of cultural difference from Europe being an island. Um, the relatively recent history of empire which at least amongst kind of more right-wing sectors of, of society um a feeling that no we can kind of go it alone and that less enmeshed with other european countries um for this reason it was probably got to that stage maybe more than it would be likely to get to that stage in other european countries you may disagree i'm not looking for for discussion on that what i am saying that is that even it, should it arise that there is a a referendum on European membership in another EU member state, what lesson would you give if you had to give one lesson to people also seeking to leave their leave the EU, uh, maybe reflecting on something that you regret doing or regret not doing um, over the Brexit process? I think the, um, so that the question, I suppose it's possible to package an answer um, which addresses both of your points. Um, the internal divisions um, within within member states of the European Union are the basis of the existence of the European Union itself. And so the process of withdrawing from the European Union is itself a process of reconstituting um, national sovereignty. There is no nation state to go back to. And this was very much, I mean, we suspected this. This was our theoretical expectation. Mm. It's one of the most Um, interesting points in the book, I have to say, just to highlight to listeners. It's vindicated by the Brexit process. I mean, I think there were plenty. I mean, maybe this is unfair, but I, you know, I I think it's, I think I I can say it with confidence. There were plenty of people, including Brexit voters, who imagined that um, kind of a British nation state or uh, a vibrant United Kingdom would simply snap into place once the 
um, integument of European Union membership was cast off as if it was simply kind of an uncomfortable pair of clothes. But in fact, it, the whole process, its bitterness and its intensity, the political and social divisions that it revealed and the polarization that it unleashed indicated that the European Union was not something external to the British state and society, but something that was very much um, a structural feature. It was embedded in British society itself. It was an outgrowth of dynamics that were entirely internal to Britain itself. And so the process of withdrawing from the British, from the European Union, excuse me, is um, a process effectively of nation building. And so that would be the task. Mm. And I think this is not just for um, member st- existing member states of the European Union, but I think for any country that is looking, that would be looking to significantly alter its relationship with um, liberal globalism or neoliberal globalism over the last 30 years, Um, that it's essentially what confronts states around the world is essentially a process of nation building, which is to say a process of recreating um, the possibility of coherent, meaningful politics around sovereign states. and so this goes to why Britain, I mean, the, the question of why Britain was able to do it, I think most of the reasons are fairly contingent. I don't think it was, in so, you know, the memory of empire, I think, factors um, perhaps only in unexpected and odd ways. Um, it was a slander cast by many left-wingers on Brexit voters that they were nostalgic for empire. But, um, you know, a solid one-third of Britain's ethnic minorities voted for Brexit and the reason for that probably, and this is the argument made by Hans Kudnani, is that a lot of it was uh, Asian support for um, returning to a Britain that was more linked to um, the former empire with the Commonwealth, say, because it was turning, it was Britain turning its back on immigrants from the Commonwealth in the 1970s and opening itself up to Europe that was seen as Britain kind of turning its back on the former subjects of the empire, right? So the point is that if there was pro-imperial sentiment in the Brexit vote, it probably manifested itself in Britain's ethnic voters, some of Britain's ethnic voters voting for Brexit, as much as it might have motivated um, Tory, you know, kind of uh, old Tory voters who might have been misty-eyed about Britain's status in the world. And in fact, it was, you know, Remainers who were more committed to maintaining Britain's global position. Now, all of that, I'm saying all of that. No, certainly. I, I meant more, you know, a limited body of Tory remainers. What I, uh, Tory I guess believers, what I mean, sorry. I'm, what I guess I'm saying is like um, not to think that the that British exceptionalism um, means that um, these kinds of challenges, political challenges and political opportunities aren't offered to other countries. Um, because in as much as there was British exceptionalism, in in Brexit, it might have it manifested itself in all sorts of unexpected ways, right? Unpredictable and unexpected ways. Um, but whatever it is, I think it's nation building. And the alternative, uh, you know, the alternative to to nation building is Brazilianization. And you said this yourself, Alex, right? Um, and so I think that is really the um, the kind of the political choices that confronts most countries that are capable of any kind of meaningful political self-sufficiency, political independence, in as much as they are at all, um, if they are to have uh, any kind of self-government at all, whether individual or collective, then what's involved is a process of nation building. And Brexit Britain is further ahead in that path than any other state in, in the West, if not in the world. 
Yeah, I mean, questions of lessons for others from from Brexit. I think it is a good a good one. I mean, not least because we did um, establish a lot of a lot of links internationally. Talked to a lot of um, you know Euroskeptics. I think left Euroskeptics would be the right term, probably across you know across across Europe. I mean, but the, the first, when you kind of pose this question, the first thing that it made me think was to go back right to the the first question you asked, like what what would I have done differently if I'd known on the twenty fourth of of June twenty sixteen what you know what I know now? I mean, I think I guess I was quite surprised how um, how clarifying almost instantly like the referendum and the response to the referendum was it was you know a, a culture war a, a, a political war um a kind of you know battle over democracy all these things kind of rolled into one pretty much immediately and you know i was uh, tried to be quite active in in kind of going to um i guess political meetings and joining groups of um not just the full brexit but kind of people who we thought might be you know aligned in various different ways and what what was more or less immediately revealed was the central place of the the Labour Party on on the British left, and this is something which I'd obviously accepted theoretically previously, but I was just like, well, actually, this this was a a really clear lesson that you know people were prepared to 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 tow a quite I think like unvi like not very viable at all line on Lexit, like we just need to do whatever it is to get to get Labour into power. Um, and and to kind of leave the ideas of popular sovereignty, democracy, respecting the vote, like respecting working class people's ability to make political decisions, like just leave those at the door. So it was, um, I basically, I guess what I'm saying, like a lot in a really long winded way, is that there the people who I thought were going to be the um, the kind of allies um, were not really. So that I think is is a lesson that you know that would would apply if any other country went through a process of leaving the eu that essentially the you know the political it's very stark right the political battle lines are drawn in quite a in quite a um a kind of reductive way but that can be can be quite illuminating i think theoretically what um what one of the lessons from brexit probably is that we you know made make this distinction between a nation state and a, and a member state on it's the hartfield bickerton thesis as we as we put it in the book um and it's quite you know there's quite a lot of theory behind this but anyway the basic idea is that you you leave the eu you don't go back or you don't transform the state into suddenly a democratic one so now we're left with all these post-brexit post-nation state post-member state pathologies and what is the way to describe these i think the best concept is this idea of a post-member state we're not a you know it's not a democratic society but it is a it is a uh, a political context in which the political class have been trained in all the ways all the kind of uh, ways and means of the member state but we're not in that in that situation now so this is partly what we use in the book to explain what happened with covid what happens um in the years after after leaving the eu and so it's like i guess it's kind of a sobering lesson in in some ways one that the the political alliances that you might have to make are not the ones you expect and secondly you know you you kind of make you advocate for something and even with the with the explicit argument this is necessary not but not sufficient and then when it ends up happening you're faced with oh shit there's still a lot 
a lot more to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's and then that requires a whole a whole nother set of uh, <laughs> arguments and alliances and um, you know defeats. And that's you know what is it? Politics is the is boring to hold in hard wood or whatever it is the phrase. But yeah, it certainly requires a lot of that. Um, so yeah, I mean, but it was still right. it was a fun ride and a great book was written <laughs> as a consequence it's the first democratic successful democratic revolt against um neoliberal globalization and that is that is its world historic um its world historic significance and i think you know the it's it, it um its implications and repercussions are likely to be felt both in british and in european politics for years to come if not decades to come yet well, hopefully, we're back at, we're, we're hopefully back at the we're, forefront of world history for the first mm. time since 1640. So, you know, good for well, us. Ho- hopefully, hopefully, someone overtakes Britain and goes even faster and and, and farther, um, and then we can be, you know, talking about that. Um, and as uh, you know, the European Union comes under further strain. Okay, um, taking control, sovereignty, and democracy after Brexit. Um, do get a copy. Um, as I said, there's some really interesting points which I hope have come through here. Maybe some which also weren't um, raised maybe so explicitly. Um, I think, as I said, I think this nation of having to rebuild the nation is really interesting. Stuff that I wasn't actually familiar with even though I talked to Phil and George all the time. Um, so, worth getting a, a copy. And you can get a copy um, at you know places where you buy books. So do that. Okay. Um, listener, thank you for sticking along with us on, on the thing about Brexit. We probably won't be talking about Brexit anytime soon again. Um, but we would be interested to hear what you thought. Was that, were you convinced by these arguments? Um, and, you know, are you doing something to make uh, to take back control where you are, let us know. And that's it from us for now. Catch you next week. Bye-bye.